This is the Kawabui Show. Kawabui is an author, international speaker, and entrepreneur. He started his first business selling music CDs in high school at the age of 16. He then went on and built several businesses. He is the founder of River Design, a marketing company that helps businesses get more exposure online and offline. He has appeared on TV, radio, newspaper, and magazines from around the world. He has written and published several books and created various products. Kawabui is also an international speaker, corporate trainer, and speaks on topics of business, entrepreneurship, motivation, health, marketing, and online business. You could check out his blog site at www.kowa-bui.com. And now, your host, Mr. Kowabui. Mr. Kowabui. Hey going, it's Kwa here, and in this podcast, I would like to introduce you to a man named Donald Robertson. He is the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Um, this is a podcast interview I've been waiting to do for quite some time. Uh, I'm a strong believer in Stoicism, and Stoicism, it's an ancient philosophy, and it's all about how you cope with problems find um, wisdom and fortitude by going inward from how you perceive things and how you react to things. And also check out Marcus Aurelius. So Marcus Aurelius, he is a Roman emperor. He was the, the last good Roman emperors. What was really fascinating about Marcus Aurelius was that he had everything. He had, um, you know, he had access to everything. He had the fortune, he had access to the entertainment, um, the women as well, he had, had all of it. But he didn't, he didn't indulge in all of that stuff. What he did was, he dealt with problems. He sat down and he tried to sort out all of these problems by writing his thoughts down. His book, Meditations, um, that was a book that was incredibly insightful into how he thinks and how he copes with all these problems. So some of the things that you'll learn in Stoicism has really uh, can really help shape your life and it's really helped my life as well. I was going through um, some really tough times uh, in my life. I went, just by reading through Marcus Aurelius's um, content and, and uh, you know, his quotes and his ideas, it's really helped me cope with all the problems that I'm having. And that's what really led me into studying Stoicism. So um, Donald Robertson, he is um, currently based in um, Athens, Greece, and uh, he's got over 20 years of studying Stoicism, ancient philosophy, he's a historian. He's also connected to the Freemasons as well, so I think his parents uh, were also Freemasons. So um, he was calling in from Athens, Greece, so it's really exciting to interview someone from that that distance so there's a lot to cover in this particular interview um, but yeah it's it's a really it's a very in-depth interview I highly recommend for you to check out Stoicism if you don't know much about it let's go have a look at Donald Robertson check out um, Stoicism and to learn about ancient philosophy so let's have a look thanks hi hello let me just switch my video on how you going good good how are you yeah good to see you Good to see you too. Yeah. What's the uh, <laughs> what's what's the weather like in in Greece? I actually it was raining yesterday, but apart from that, it's it's been pretty warm here, as you might expect. Yeah. Twenty six degrees or something the other day. Yeah, looking good. You know, looking very relaxed and enjoying yourself there. <laughs> nice. Are you in your office or you're just somewhere else? Yeah, where I'm staying at the moment because I'm traveling and stuff. Yeah, I'm going to Belgium in a, in a few days' time. Yep. Oh wow, that's incredible. And then I'm going back to Toronto. I kind of live in Toronto. Yeah. Sort of, sort of live in Toronto, but I travel a bit at the moment. So. 
Mm. I was in the Netherlands and then I was in Athens. Went to Sparta the other day. That was interesting. Wow. And then uh, I was there for a couple of days in the mountains. Sparta. Mm. But this big sporting event called Spartan Race. Okay. What um, was that like? Yeah, it's crazy. Like mm. the, there's a lot of kind of uh, athletes, like a lot of kind of extreme. Uh, it's a, an obstacle course race. So did, did you uh, participate, or hmm? just, wait, did you participate? No, or? I'm not that athletic. <laughs> like, I do a bit of exercise, but not enough to keep up with those guys. Mm. Uh, I can't do that. I can't rock. I can't run up and down mountains. <laughs> <laughs> we got to keep trying, right? I did, I did don't, don't give up. I wouldn't mind having a go. I'm kind of tempted, but I'd probably need to train quite a bit to get in shape to do it. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, so you're doing a bit of traveling, right? Uh, or you, you just travel full time and just uh, you write? Yeah, I'm doing travel yeah. at the moment because I have to promote uh, my latest book and also running conferences. So I was in, I was in staying in Toronto and then I went to New York. Yep. And then I was in the Netherlands. Athens and Sparta and in Belgium and then back to Toronto and then I'm going to Quantico in Virginia wow. to speak to the Marine Corps University and mm-hmm. then I'm going to Brazil just three of my books have just been translated there yep um so yeah kind of getting around a little bit for that's great some conferences and talks and stuff that I'm doing basically yeah well yeah thanks a lot for your time I really appreciate your time and um yeah I saw what you're doing you had the the latest book um how to think like a Roman emperor and it's all about stoicism. Yeah. That's the one. That's the one. And I love the, you know, I love the book cover and, um, you know, as soon as I typed in stoicism, you know, your name came up and, um, you know, I thought oh, I got to get this guy. I got, I got to get this guy on, on the podcast. Fantastic. Okay. So, um, so let's get started with, um, with your background. Like how did you, what what made you get started with the whole stoicism? Like, what was that thing that made you get into the stoicism? How did you get started into it? Well, um, if you want the long version of the story, like my father uh, passed away when I was pretty young. I was only about 13 uh, years old and uh, he had lung cancer. So he passed away. And he didn't leave many things behind. My family were pretty, uh, pretty poor. We didn't have many possessions back in the day. So we didn't have a car, for example. Or oh, no car, oh, wow. <laughs> like uh, so we, uh, he left behind a bunch of free Masonic books because, mm. I've explained this to people sometimes, um, in, in Freemasonry uh, is part of the culture in parts of Scotland. And in mm. my hometown, most of my fathers were Freemasons. Wow. So my father was Freemason. And he left behind these books. And so I thought I'd have a look at them. Yeah. Couldn't make head nor tail of them. There's a lot of Hebrew and stuff and weird symbolic things. So I started to kind of, uh, I started learning Hebrew actually. And the local church minister helped me and that kind of got me into reading the Bible. And then I, I read the Gnostic Gospels and the Apocrypha. Mm. And then uh, that got me into reading about Neoplatonism because here's a little obscure bit of trivia, but it's an interesting one. Okay. In the 1940s in Egypt, they found a buried cache of early Christian Gospels called the Nash Hamadi, or the Chernobyl Library. Wow. It's a treasure trove like, of ancient texts. And they were bound. And in one of those books, they had early Christian Gnostic Gospels and stuff that was influenced by Neoplatonism. Mm-hmm. But these Christian, this Christian community had bound alongside those Gospels uh, an excerpt from Plato's Republic, 
Okay. How weird is that? Wow. So if the Bible, if, if history had developed differently, Plato could have been in the Bible. Like yeah, they had amazing. a Bible that had Plato in it, um, which is really strange. So that got me into reading Plato and learning about Socrates. And then I, I decided to go through the whole history of Western philosophy in chronological order. Mm. I got to the Middle Ages and then I felt like it got a bit boring. Like okay. forward to, to the Scottish Enlightenment. And then I, I went to university eventually and I, studied, I did my degree in philosophy. And I was kind of, I was on this quest. I was practicing self-help techniques and doing meditation because mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to help myself somehow. I was mm. kind of struggling and looking for direction. I okay. was looking at philosophy and all different world religions. I read the Upanishads and the Tao Te Ching and all this Christian stuff and mystical stuff, Thomas Akempis and the Cloud of Unknowing and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so I read very widely in philosophy and religion when I was like 17, like, or, you know, even younger. And I, uh, I, and I got into psychotherapy. I, went, I started reading Freud and Jung because mm. I kind of wanted to do something to help other people as well and I, I kind of wanted to have a career where I might be helping people yep. and after four years later after finishing my philosophy degree at Aberdeen University I was still equally confused and I, okay. I was struggling to find a way to bring these things together and then I was reading a book in Neoplatonism uh, by a guy called Pierre Hadot and I thought it was so good that I'd go and read all of his other books mm. and Hadot wrote uh, a number of books about stoicism the main one was an analysis of Marcus Aurelius's meditations called the Inner Citadel. And it suddenly hit me like a diamond bullet straight between the eyes. Wow. I had this kind of epiphany. And I realized that the, you don't study stoicism uh, ordinarily in a philosophy degree. Um, and, and actually the interesting reason why you don't study it normally at university is that academic philosophers think the Stoics didn't really create any new theories. Mm -hmm. They took aspects of earlier philosophy and developed the practical applications of them. So academic philosophers don't find that interesting, but everybody else does. That's precisely what people think is interesting about the Stoics, that yeah. they develop aspects of Socrates' philosophy into a, a, a self-help or self-improvement system. And so the, the one stone that had been cast aside by the builders turned out to be the cornerstone, as the saying goes. And I realized that stoicism had all these psychological techniques, kind of meditation techniques. Yeah. And uh, I realized it provided a workable philosophy of life. And also discovered, because I was now training in psychotherapy, that modern cognitive behavioral therapy, which developed in the mid-1950s, was inspired by Stoic philosophy and drew its philosophical inspiration from it. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about the significance of that later. Mm. But the key thing was I had these three interests and I was like juggling these balls and then suddenly they all came together and locked tightly into one thing. Mm. And apart from anything else, I thought, oh, I don't need to read as many books anymore. I can just read the Stoics. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I was reading psychotherapy and psychology and philosophy and religion and stuff. <laughs> and I thought, well, I could just focus on this one subject. And that was like I don't know, 25 years or something. I, I don't want to count, but it was a long time ago. And, uh, and it hasn't changed to this day. I, I still feel a kind of existential relaxation um, because I found this niche and everything, like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle just locked into place neatly for me. Mm. And I, I still feel that that makes sense. So I, for a long time, until I was 19 or something, I guess it would have been, I was struggling to kind of make sense. And then one day it all just kind of clicked into place beautifully. And when I realized that that's what stoicism was, stoicism was the thing that I was looking for that combined 
philosophy, uh, meditation, and kind of psychotherapy all in one neat package. Mm, that's amazing. I, I think I remember you um, saying that you've met a lot of people who might have dabbled in Stoicism, people who've started and people who've learned it for quite some time, but you've never met someone who's actually left Stoicism. There's always someone that they're always in it. That you know, once you get into Stoicism, you just never really leave, right? You just keep on learning more and more, isn't it? It's uh, Stoicism's for life, not just for Christmas. I like yeah. to say, <laughs> yeah. You know, people people get into it and they kind of stay into it. Another thing I like to say is I've never met anyone with an Albert Ellis, the founder of cognitive therapy. I've never met anyone with an Albert Ellis tattoo. So far, mm. I'm still waiting to bring it out <laughs> yeah. there. I get in touch if anyone's got one. But yeah. I keep meeting people with Marcus Aurelius tattoos and quotes from, from Stoicism and symbols. Mm. And the reason I think that's kind of interesting, it symbolizes something that, which is that people identify with Stoicism at a deeper level. Like it's almost like a substitute for a religion to them. Mm. Um, and so it becomes a lifelong thing. Whereas they learn CBT techniques or other self-help techniques and then six months later they've forgotten them and kind of reverted back to their old habits. Mm. But the, the reason that Stoicism actually holds out so much promise is that people identify with it at an existential level it becomes part of who they are and they continue to read the stoics and think about stoicism you know decades later yeah 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 definitely um i mean i've heard that presidents and great leaders um you know around the world they've got the copy of meditations by the by the you know by the bed and um yeah they tend to read it because it's just a source of comfort really um and it helps people just get over pain i mean that that's what really drew me into marcus aurelius is, um is just his, some of his quotes it just helps me just deal with like the frustrations and uh, for example like he said um like for example like if i'm dealing with some angry people some people who really frustrate me um like marcus aurelius talks about that you know you've just met someone who is just part of the one percent of or ten percent of the population who's just always angry you know, you just got to accept that. Um, don't look at it as what, don't be so, so, so surprised that this person is, is an angry person. You know, you just net, met a percentage of the population who's angry. So it really just changed your thinking. I just absolutely love it. Yeah. You know, it's one of the themes. I mean, on, you, you've kind of touched on two things there. One, mm. one is that the Stoics are eminently quotable. Mm. And there are several reasons for that. One is that they, in some limited respects, they were inspired by the Spartans. And I was wow. just at Sparta the other day talking about this so sparta the city of sparta is in an area that used to be called laconia and that's where we get the adjective laconic to be laconic from and to be laconic means to speak concisely like that's still an art i have to learn (laughs) the stoics and the spartans were men of few words and the stoics um prided themselves on trying to condense their philosophy into short pithy aphoristic sayings and the reason they did that was they thought they should be easy to remember they thought, what's the point in having a long, complicated speech if you think, oh, that's really inspiring, and then you can't really remember it a couple mm. of days later. And the ancient Athenians were known for that. Like the Sophists in particular would have these very inspiring speeches, but you couldn't really, it was hard. You know, what's the, we say now, what's the takeaway from this? You know, but there wasn't always a clear takeaway. Mm. Um, whereas the Stoics thought, you, you have to be able to sum this up uh, in a couple of words so that you could kind of engrave it on your mind and you remember it in the face of a stressful situation because otherwise it's like sand running through your fingers all of this wisdom it's, it's difficult to kind of properly assimilate it and the other reason that it's like that is we only have about one percent of the original stoic text surviving today 
like a lot of ancient libraries were destroyed and ancient texts were very fragile things. There weren't as many mm. copies of them either. Um, and uh, the Christian church in part was, was responsible for suppressing some of these texts by pa earlier pagan authors. So the ones that we have surviving are the one, the cream of the cream, um, the 1% the that people thought were most remarkable. So in a way, we, we kind of have stoicism that's been curated for us by 2,000 years of history. And people have went, if you wanted to save 1% of this stuff, like Marcus Aurelius would have to be in that 1%, Seneca yep. and Epictetus have to be in that one percent mm -hmm. so i i you know i i, I kind of reassure myself and I, I comfort myself with the thought that the other 99 percent of the stoic writings were maybe kind of boring yeah they, they possibly weren't as good you know i'm sure there were good bits in it but we've probably got the best bits actually mm. and uh that, that's one of the reasons because these texts are very beautiful and profound and memorable that's one of the main things that actually helps people to get more benefit from them because they spend longer thinking about it and digesting it and they remember it years later Mm, mm, definitely um yeah uh, like you've mentioned seneca as well i've read the book um on the shortness of life a uh, fantastic book um what, what are your thoughts on because there was a bit of con controversy surrounding this book where the time it was written was the time when jesus was also born as well but there was no reference to to jesus at the beginning of the book or something like during the book did did you pick up that one as well like i think there was a bit of controversy surrounding there what are your seneca thoughts on that a generation after uh, was it time in, I remember he was a contemporary um, like, well he was contemporary with St. Paul mm. um, and there were for uh, many centuries a series of letters fake letters um, in the ancient world it was, it was fairly common to fake books um, particularly letters actually mm. were, were often fake um, I guess maybe people made money by selling fake letters or something I don't know but there's a yeah. lot of these things and there were a bunch of fake letters between St. Paul and Seneca. And, but what everyone always mentions when they bring this up is, well, if nothing else, it proves that early Christians really wanted St. Paul and Seneca to be friends. <laughs> like, and they kind of thought that they looked like they should be. Um, and some people have said St. Paul looks like he's influenced by Stoicism. There's yeah. actually a passage in the Acts of the Apostles where the Stoics are mentioned, which a lot of people, not a lot of people know that. The Stoics and the Epicureans are at uh, the foot of the Acropolis in Athens. Probably see it out my window, like not a stone's throw oh, wow. here. Yeah. And uh, on the Areopagus, this rock um, tourist attraction today, St. Paul spoke to a crowd of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and he quotes some lines of poetry to them. And one of them is a couple of lines from uh, a poet called Aratus, who was a student of Zeno, the founder of Stoicism. So if he quotes from a, a Stoic piece of poetry to this mm. audience of Epicureans, but he kind of argues with them. Mm. Um, so yeah, the Seneca, I mean, not many pagan authors really mention the, the uh, Jesus, um, and some, certainly not until generations later. There's a, I mean, that's a problem for Christian scholars, mm. is the, this kind of the, the lack of references uh, mm. to Jesus Christ and, and reliable historical sources. Mm -hmm. um, and also when the early Romans, um, when, they, when the Romans of the imperial era uh, talk about Christians, they, the way that they perceive them is as a kind of like a suicide cult or something like they, they don't have a very flattering image of Christians. They, they, uh, even Marcus Aurelius says in passing, um, 
he'd learned as a young man not to pay attention to charlatans mm. and sorcerers and people who perform exorcisms, which by implication would only have been Christians. Um, so his perception is he lumps them in with kind of hoodoo merchants and, and hucksters. Um, and he thinks that they're mainly of them as people who go around promising to do bogus exorcisms on people. Mm. So the Stoics didn't really, you know, maybe know that much about the Christians and certainly didn't hold them in, in high regard. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, so what, what about, um, what, what's your thoughts on the reason why Seneca um, committed suicide at the end? What, what, what were your, what's your thoughts on that? Because I think that, that idea was divided. Some people said that it was, um, um, you know, he was persuaded to kill himself, but you know, some people who say that he, he did it out of his own will. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, he was forced to, I mean, in the ancient world, it was common to execute people by forced suicide as it's mm. phrased. Um, yeah. Forced suicide. Okay. Forced suicide. Um, so you you know the, you you're gonna you're gonna kill yourself. But you don't have any choice about it. Like if yeah. you don't do it, we'll do it for you. Kind of was the proposition, and that's how uh, Socrates died in a different mode. But he was by the Athenian court. He was told to drink hemlock, mm. so he was told to kill himself. And so Seneca was told to kill himself by Nero's guards. But he reputedly said, I mean, we have this account by Tacitus, who who says, um, you know that. Seneca died like a stoic sage and he told his friends that he was mentally prepared for it and like you were saying earlier actually the, the stoics say that the wise man should never be surprised by anything mm. not really you know I mean they, they they actually have phrased this in a more nuanced and, and way they'll say obviously someone runs up behind you and goes boo mm. you know you would be like anyone else but the, the stoic wise man isn't surprised by things in the sense that if someone steals his wallet he doesn't go oh my god how could this possibly no, happen yeah mm. You know, stuff happens, mm. right? Wallets get stolen. Like I've seen it happen to plenty of other people. Mm. Like you know, it's one of those things that happens like to a lot of people eventually in life. Mm. Or if a relationship breaks up, he doesn't say, "How could this possibly?" I can't believe it. Why me? Mm. He thinks mm. happens. Happens to other people. Maybe happened to me before in the past. Mm. So he doesn't act surprised. The Stoics think it's kind of bogus in a way that people say, "I can't believe it." Like, it's not rational, it's not philosophical, because they should have known that these are the sort of things that, that happen in life. Mm. And that's how Seneca responds to his execution. He says, yeah, Nero executes people. It's what he, it's what he does. How he, like, how wow. he do like, He says Nero, Nero's a sociopath and a tyrant. And he, yeah, <laughs> and he did it. <laughs> wow. You know, I kind of thought it might happen eventually, you know, and, mm. and I guess the time's come. And that was how he reacted to it. But he also is very consistent with what he writes because he talks about mentally rehearsing your own death mm. and on a daily basis kind of uh, visualizing uh, the, the things that might possibly go wrong as if they're happening now. And, and one of those must have been uh, that each day he imagined the knock on his door and the guards saying, your time's up, buddy. Mm. Like, so that you know, when it eventually happened, he's like, yeah, I've, I've, I've pictured this hundreds of times. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that quote that um, Marcus Aurelius said. He goes, oh, death smiles at us all, but all a man can do is smile back. So I love that quote that Marcus said. So um, That's from the movie Gladiator. Like, oh, is it? Oh, wow. Yeah, he, say, he doesn't say that in the meditations, but he says things that actually, that's the one thing in Gladiator that's pretty close 
to the stuff that he says in the meditations. It's not a quote, but it's mm. kind of it's similar to the things that he says. So I'll give them that one. It's close enough. That it's sound it definitely sounds like something Marcus might have said. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, then this is a big theme. Socrates said this as well. Socrates actually went so far as to say that the whole of philosophy is a milite thanatu. He says it. Uh, a meditation or a training for death. Yeah. He says that's what philosophy is, it's to prepare you for death, which sounds like a very kind of radical thing to say. But, yeah. Uh, that was his, he was the first to say that, and then the Stoics agreed with him. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm sure you also, let's go into the future now. So, you know how with Steve Jobs, he, um, he invented Apple, and he said this really amazing speech, and, and he uses death. He, he uses death to really motivate him to create all these amazing products and, and you know to make use of time so would you consider by looking throughout all of stoicism that death was the primary driver to you know push these amazing innovations out what do you think i think it's one of the drivers and again actually they seemingly took this from spartan culture in part mm. um the spartans said someone asked the spartan king how is it that your warriors are so courageous in battle um and uh, he said, because we train them to care about life, but to be unafraid of death. And this is this, Stoicism is kind of all about paradoxes. So Socrates was known for these paradoxes as well. Mm. So the Stoics value life, but at the same time, they're not afraid of death. And uh, that is, you know, one of the main things. Seneca says to, to uh, learn how to die is to unlearn how to be a slave. He's, you know, he puts, that's one of the most powerful, wow. you know, like, that's a kind of, whoa, like, really? And then to <laughs> add to that, the fact that he faces death, you know, uh, patiently and, and courageously seems to make it very, a very compelling story out of it. Mm. So the Stoics were known, the Stoics believed that this was the secret to standing up to tyrants in particular, that if you're afraid of dying, then they know that the problem you're going to have is that in the ancient world, they've always got something over you. Mm. they're always gonna have something over you as long as you're and the only way around that is to be unafraid of dying mm. like that was their very simple argument under domitian uh, a roman emperor who came after nero who, who persecuted philosophers he said you guys need to get out of here <clears throat> you know i'm going to exile the lot of you mm. you know because you're troublemakers um and the you can stay if you shave your beards off okay. um, because the beard at that time was a symbol of a philosopher and he said you could apparently you could even tell which school of philosophy someone followed by the style of beard that they had okay. and he said if you shave your beards off in a band and take off your philosopher's robes then i'll let you stay but you're not mm. walking around here dressed like philosophers and stuff and like many tyrants he said i'm going to strip you of all the emblems of your ideology and belief um or or you're out of here, we're, we're going to obliterate this thing because I, I, I see it as destabilizing politically. And Epictetus implies, he says to, he tells a story to his students, it's not entirely clear if he means that he actually did this, but it sounds like he's saying to his students um, that he said, if you want to cut my beard off, you're going to have to cut my head off first. Like, which sounds again like <laughs> a really kind of confrontational thing to say. Yeah. And many said wow you know like he, this guy's really attached to his beard like it was what it symbolized to him it would be like to epic someone like epictetus it would be like shaking the hand of a tyrant like he said i'm not doing that because you're basically asking me to give into dictatorship symbolically by doing that so mm. not a chance 
Um, so the Stoics were renowned for opposing political tyranny, and they, they argue that they were able to do that in part because they reconciled themselves to their own death. Although in the ancient world, I have to say, that's kind of easier because people drop dead like flies. And, mm. uh, you know, like Seneca, uh, you know, saw a lot of his friends and uh, associates getting the chops. So it, it wouldn't have been as big. He didn't have that much choice in a way, but to mentally prepare himself for it. We live in a society that's strangely inoculated from death. Mm, yeah. You know, we put elderly people in hospices. We have our food uh, processed for us in factories, in abattoirs. We don't see animals dying or people dying much. But in the ancient world, you know, that was a daily occurrence. Mm. Um, and the mortality rate was higher. So people were more reconciled to the concept of their own mortality because it was in much more in your face. Than, yeah. Whereas we're sheltered from it. In a, in a way that makes death appear more more strange and more shocking and more alien to us than it, than it has throughout the, the whole of human at any point throughout the whole of human history yeah definitely um like you actually wrote a book a, a book called building your resilience as well and um the latest one obviously is how to think like a roman emperor so what you just mentioned is that um in modern times at the moment you know people don't have that resiliency so would you say that reading through all the philosophy, the stoicism that builds that internal fortitude that people need, and then that will help shape their future, like help them prepare for the future? We don't have, I mean, I'm an evidence-based psychotherapist, so I'm committed mm. to saying we test everything and gather proper, well-controlled okay. research on it. Um, but that said, we do have a lot of research that shows that the, the Research on resilience build, like in mental health, most of the research, 99% of the research that we do is on clinical populations and it's remedial or therapeutic. Okay. So you have people that are already diagnosed as having a severe problem and then we check out what actually works in terms of improving their symptoms. But prevention is better than cure, mm. as everybody knows. And there's not as much. It's an, an emerging field of research now is on preventative mental health approaches. And that's harder to research because the longer the period of time that you have to do the research over, the less reliable the statistics are going to be because you're going to have attrition or dropout. And so if you want to do resilience training, you might have to measure people over 5, 10, 15 years, and then you, it's going to be harder to construct studies like that and more expensive, and the data is going to be inherently less reliable. So it's, okay. it's harder to know for sure what works preventatively. But the best research we have suggests that um, a training that's based on CBT works. And what I can say is that CBT is inspired by stoicism. So maybe we can have a little digression here. I'll say one of the most mm. important things. That's yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Yeah. So Ellis, who is the founder of CBT, or the founder of the main precursor, uh, rational emotive behavior therapy, depending on how you like to put it. Ellis was a psychoanalyst, and like a lot of great people, he woke up one day basically after a, a period of disillusionment and, and quit his job in a sense. Or he started, he said, I'm going to start again from scratch because this psychoanalytic therapy just doesn't make sense to me. It's just not working out for me, this Freudian, Freudian stuff. I'm going to have to scrap it mm. and start again from scratch. And often that's the beginning of great things when somebody says, trashes something and starts building again a new. And so he looked around, and as a teenager, uh, decades earlier, he'd read Marcus Aurelius and uh, Epictetus, the Stoics. I hadn't read Seneca as much, apparently. 
Mm. But he, uh, so he decided to develop an approach to therapy that was inspired by them, and in particular by one of the fundamental psychological premises of Stoicism, perhaps the central psychological premise of Stoicism, wow. which is passage five in the Enchiridion, or Handbook of Epictetus. And it says, it's not things that upset us, or not events, pragmata, that upset us, but our opinions, dogmata, about them. Um, so it's not, it's not events that upset us, but our opinions about them. And Ellis was so enamored of that quote that he taught it to all of his clients and all of his students. So it became a cliche in early cognitive behavioral therapy. And the reason that he was so attached to it is that it, in layman's terms, in plain language, it articulates the, what we now call the cognitive theory of emotion, which is mm. the central theoretical premise of all cognitive therapy. So this is the foundation on which the whole cognitive therapy stands. And so this kind of central point connects stoicism and, and cognitive therapy. So all the research that supports CBT, in a sense, can, in a slightly roundabout way, validates stoicism or validates one of the essential, one of the central premises of mm. it. And then from that premise, the, the, Ellis borrowed some techniques from stoicism, but he also, he and other cognitive therapists inevitably arrived at some similar conclusions, because when you start from the same place, you're often predestined to arrive at some of the same conclusions. Mm. And the reason that premise was so important, people often don't understand this, but it's a simple point. If someone uh, has anger or anxiety or depression they probably realize when they come to therapy it, there's something wrong about it it's not helping them so they'll come into therapy saying i feel really depressed and it doesn't make sense you know i shouldn't feel this down and it's kind of irrational and i, I don't want to feel this way and and uh, and then but then as the therapist begins helping them to question it at some point they'll usually say look i can't help it it's just mm. the way i feel and that's a way of ending the conversation. It's okay. like a chess move that allows you to say, I'm not, I'm not going to change this. Like, listen, I can't help it. It's just the way I feel. If you think about it, that move, that little chess move is a way of saying, I'm not going to change this. Mm. Like, I can't help it. It's just the way I feel. It's just what it is, right, buddy? Like, like end of conversation. And that, that's kind of a sticking point in ordinary conversations about someone's irrational feelings. You go, okay, I guess it's just the way you feel. Like, then we're stuck with it or whatever. But if you adopt the cognitive theory of emotion, you would say, well, the way that you feel is dependent on underlying assumptions and beliefs that you have. That's what a cognition mm. is, a belief, a thought, an assumption. And so Ellis would say to people who say that, Ellis would say, but it's not just the way that you feel. It's also the way that you think. Mm. And the reason that's so important is because thoughts have truth value. So then you can say, what evidence is there for the thoughts that cause you to feel that way? So you feel depressed because of what beliefs? Because you believe everybody hates you. Let's say nobody likes me, everybody hates me. I think I'll go and eat worms. There's a like, kind of nursery room because then. So everybody hates me, nobody likes like, But what evidence do you have that everybody hates you? Like, do, or do you also believe things that contradict that? Is it mm -hmm. even a consistent thing that you hold? What would be an alternate way of interpreting the things that you see that might be more rational, more plausible, Light and healthier. So you can begin evaluating the evidence, you can question whether there might be alternative ways of interpreting the same event, and it opens up a whole repertoire of cognitive therapy techniques. Hmm. And the Stoics realized that, and, uh, it, but it took 2,000 years for psych, you know, modern psychotherapy to arrive at the same conclusion. Hmm. And when it did, it was like a rocket taking off, and that's really wow. the birth of 
of modern evidence-based, research-based uh, treatments and, and psychotherapy, like things Dr. Pelf followed a lot. Before that, Freud would have went, I don't know, let, let's talk about your dreams, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe your mum. Yeah. You know, he was off in a very different direction with things. It's all about the mother, uh, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was all about the Jesus complex and the mother. Yeah. He came from nowhere. Freud did zero research. Like, the reason that he believed all that stuff was because of his own dreams. Mm. So he had these issues himself, and he just assumed that other people had the same issues. He never did a single jot or a single stroke of research. And then when people actually did start doing research, they, they, they found, like, voluminous evidence to show it, there is a correlation between thinking that everybody hates you and feeling depressed, for example. Mm. Like, and there are other typical beliefs that people have that, that seem to fuel uh, depression and anxiety and so on. And when you change those beliefs, weirdly, the feelings change as well. Mm. Like, and so many people have said there's an element of common sense to all this as well. You know, in, a, in a sense, that people have a kind of blind spot for this. But also from another perspective, it's like all the research is showing us stuff that we should have already realized like mm. the Stoics figured it out without the, the tools of research 2,000 years ago. They were smart enough just through debate and, and reflection to figure out that it was their beliefs that were shaping their emotions. But the Stoics mm. go a bit further and they say, look, it's particularly certain types of beliefs. And, and I would have said, this seems like a no-brainer as well, but the Stoics said it's your value judgments. Okay. Like, you think that if you believe that something is really important, that it's essential to living a good life, then you're going to freak out if somebody threatens it. Mm-hmm. So if you think that that having a, a, a high status job is is the most important thing in life, and and you get made redundant, maybe you're going to freak out. You're going to feel depressed. You're going to be suicidal. Mm-hmm. Like it's got to do with the belief that you hold, and maybe mm-hmm. that belief is is to use the technical vocabulary that Albert Ellis introduced. He he referred to it as crazy bullshit. <laughs> like well, maybe. Yeah, like if Ellis was very blunt like, with people, he'd say, this is crazy bullshit. Like, you know, it's not the most important thing. In life. Nobody really believes that on reflection, that having a particular job is the most important thing in life. You've hypnotized yourself into believing this crazy bullshit. Mm. Like, and then, of course, you're going to feel like your whole world has been shattered when you lose it. But another person may never have a job like that and be perfectly happy. Like, you know, you're maybe you're mistaken, you know, maybe this mm-hmm. is inconsistent and irrational. Maybe there's a, you know, a healthier way of looking at the whole situation. So we can start questioning things if we say it's about beliefs. Whereas to go back to where we started, if someone says, it's just the way I feel, mm-hmm. then we can do nothing. We have to say, no, it's also the way that you think. And yeah. what are those thoughts? What evidence is there for them? Now you've opened the door to therapy. Yeah, and and if we do that preemptively, um, we can perhaps it seems like we can build resilience. I should say I'm a founding member of a non-profit organisation called Modern Stoicism, and part mm. of our remit is to do research on stoicism. Mm. And so it's in its very early days, so I don't want to oversell it, but we but we we have a lot of not tightly controlled research on thousands of participants, and we're gradually working to work with psychologists about developing more carefully controlled studies to get more robust data. But our early findings are indicative that stoicism itself is therapeutic. And we recently did a six month follow up. Actually, we found something quite surprising there. We found that when we train people in stoicism, using the same sort of measures that are used in in psychological research studies and positive psychology and resilience building and so on, the same same measures so we can compare. Um, Normally, there'd be some drop off in the improvements that people get 
like you'd expect that, as long as it's not a big drop-off. So people that are trained in CBT or problem solving or stoicism or resilience building, you'd expect them to be less anxious and depressed at the end of it. And then mm. six months later, you'd expect them to have kind of reverted back a, a bit, but hopefully not all the way back, right? Otherwise, you're going to have to keep retraining them yeah. every six months or whatever. Like. Um, but what we found with the stoicism was that there was virtually no uh regression back to to the mean there was no there was there was virtually no uh reduction in the loss of improvement so it, it, you know wow. again the lovely jargon that we like to use having said all these kind of like slightly convoluted things it boils down to saying that stoicism is sticky mm. is the way that psychologists like to say it i, I like that stoicism is sticky six months later it's still sticky <laughs> yeah. like, that's a that's like the holy grail to them like you know that's like that's a big deal like mm. the stickiness of everything What's the point in learning something that helps you to to improve your state of mind if it just wears off mm-hmm. a couple months later? This is why people are self help junkies. Yeah. You know, uh, half the clients you meet in therapy will say they have a whole library full of self help books, mm. and then you think, doesn't that suggest that none of them are working? Health books. Like I'm an expert at no, no, no. So I'm, I'm now I need therapy, and you can think, well, like. If you're in therapy, you still have a problem. You've read 100 self-help books. Yeah. Like, like yeah. I, most have had that much, like, benefit. Like, something's not, something obviously doesn't add up about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the trick is to find something. And, and what you'll find is often people read these books, but then they don't really remember much of the advice. Or they don't yeah, you forget. It. Mm. Yeah, you forget it, right? So, go, that was a really good book. Like, but I don't remember much about it. Um, so we want the, the battle, the struggle, the quest for the Holy Grail mm. is to find something that 20, 30 years later, people go, I'm still doing that thing that Marcus Aurelius taught me to yeah. do. And, uh, you know, I find that with stoicism, not everybody does the practices, but a lot of people do. And it becomes part, it's like doing press ups or like some kind of exercise or whatever. Um, you know, it just becomes part of their daily routine. Marcus says that every morning he'd wake up uh, the, the first in the meditations. Mm, yeah. um, he would set expectations, short. right? He would yeah. set expectations on, on that he will meet uh, crooks and crannies, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Liars and traitors mm. and meddlers. And, but he says that in Meditations 2.1 is perhaps the most famous passage in the whole book. And actually, book one of Meditations is written in a very different style. Okay. And there's also a little rubric that suggests maybe it was written at a different time, possibly later, actually. So many scholars believe, I believe, that mm. the, he put one last and then it was added as a preface. Even now, some authors will write the preface, uh, write the introduction last mm. and stick it at the front of the book. And it looks like that's what he did. In which case, the main part of the book begins at but passage 2.1, which is the one you've just quoted, and the most famous passage in the book. And that's the opening passage of the whole book. Now, the earliest manuscript we have of that book was tight, had a title, and it's not the meditations. It was called, in Greek, it's called to himself. Mm. And that's partly because that's a recurring phrase. He says to myself, like say to, to yourself, he says. Mm. Um, he, says he uses that phrase repeatedly throughout the whole book. And, and so that was originally the title that was stuck on it. Whether he chose us or an editor, we don't know. Mm. But passage 2, 2.1, he says, say to yourself. And that's the title of the book. Mm. Things that you say to yourself. Because it was written for yourself. other people. Mm. You're going to meet meddlers, traitors, like liars. 
Now, I'll tell you something odd about meditations. When you read that book, and I've read it many, many, many times over decades, I've studied it very closely. Mm. Um, and I've read many different translations. I've pulled it apart. Yeah. <laughs> I've written about it extensively. I write, I run courses on it. And I still tease out, I still find little, almost like sort of biblical levels of analysis, like, mm. you know, but I still find little bits in it. Um, but uh, the, one of the a broad observations sometimes people make is when you read that book, it's one of our few examples of the private thoughts of a Roman emperor. So we know about the histories of the Roman emperors, but we don't mm. get many insights into the private life. And with Marcus, we actually have two insights. We have this personal journal that he wrote. And in the 1850s, we, uh, an Italian scholar called Angelo May discovered a, a cache of private letters that Marcus Aurelius had written to his rhetoric tutor, Marcus Cornelius Fronto. And mm. those were never meant for publication. Wow. And, and so we have a real window into his actual personal life. And it, it, first of all, it shocks people because some people who read the meditations quite superficially, I have to say, think, oh, he sounds a bit depressed. He sounds quite serious, this guy. Mm. And what they don't realize is that stoicism, he's, it, this isn't his personality. He's deliberately employing these stoic practices. That's, that's not Marcus. He, mm. he, he's going through it. It's a kind of workbook that he's going through that tells him to meditate on death and so on. Um, but when you then look at his private letters, he's good humored. He's, he's a really nice guy. Mm. He's incredibly, incredibly affectionate towards wow. his friends, and family. And also you can see evidence in his letters that he's without question a very skilled uh, diplomat. He's, and it's, I find this incredibly appealing because mm. all the way back to Socrates, Socrates says many strange things, many strange things. But one of the strange things that Socrates says is that he thinks part of the art of being a philosopher is about reconciling arguments between your friends and, and that knowing how to matchmake friends and, and how to develop friendship is integral to being a philosopher. That mm. seems very strange today. That's not something that we would no, at all think, Yeah. Mm. Um, and Socrates even calls, even calls himself a pimp. Like he says he's a kind of pimp for virtue. Like he's kind of selling uh, friendship and, and kind of ma like ma matching up uh, wise people with uh, potential students. But he, wow. he, he jokingly, I mean, Socrates is this crazy guy. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm a kind of pimp for wisdom. And uh, but there in Marcus Aurelius, like 500 years later, in his personal, this isn't him claiming this. We can see him doing it. Mm. He's incredibly subtle and skilled at managing arguments between his friends. And uh, he, he's a smart cookie. Mm. And, and also on the world stage, he, you know, as Roman emperor, a big part of his job was to act as a diplomat. Uh, he, he, Marcus Aurelius was all about peacekeeping and negotiating treaties and stuff. So you imagine this guy spent his life doing this and you can yeah. see him even doing it among his friends. But he's also an incredibly warm and affectionate guy. And, and so you don't really see that side of him in the meditations. But it blows out of the water, this kind of misconception that Stoics are like Mr. Spock. The guy in those letters couldn't be less like Mr. Spock or a robot or kind of stone-faced or whatever. Mm. You know? and, and Socrates wasn't like that either. Socrates was a, an incredibly humorous, very affectionate, you know, incredibly charismatic, likable guy. He wasn't mm. like a, an android. Um, so we, the other thing that seems odd about the meditations, um, what was I going to say about them? 
fuck it's gone it'll come back to me in a minute mm. but the the style that they are written in um is you know seems kind of gloomier in a way than it actually is so marcus aurelius is forcing himself to meditate on death i know what i was going to say when you read the meditations there's very surprisingly little hint in there so it's a valuable insight into the personal thoughts of this powerful man mm. that's unusual you wouldn't have that for augustus for example you know or other uh, nero or other famous roman emperors we'd love to know more about what was going on in their head um especially given how different it seems to be from from what we're, the historians tell us about the external story of their reign mm. and what's going on in marcus's head has surprisingly little to do with world affairs like when you read the meditations wow. you think you get the feeling that he's mainly talking about his friends and his family and kind of like sort of petty everyday disagreements with people and stuff that he's he's dealing with the passage you're talking about it sounds like now let me i'll qualify yes. that but yeah. it comes across like he's saying every morning tell yourself you're gonna have to deal with meddling people mm. interfering people liars traitors um like dishonesty right mm. and because the way he phrases it it sounds like a small scale stuff right yeah. but it, when you, you you when you know more about his life you realize he must at some level be talking about these seismic world events that he's facing probably mm. after he'd written that he faced a civil war where he was betrayed by one of his mm. most senior generals and apparently a close friend, a guy called Avidius Cassius. Mm. So the guy that wrote every day, prepare yourself to deal with traitors, at some level, although he's maybe talking about court intrigue and kind of such trivial things, uh, and he definitely had that in mind, he must also be talking about events that threatened the future of, of European civilization. Mm. Uh, you know, world world historic seismic events. But when you're reading the meditations, you 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 don't you lose sight of that. It feels like it could be anybody. Like you, it doesn't even necessarily. You kind of forget he's a Roman emperor, like mm. the most powerful man in the known world. It, it's hard. You, you would never imagine. It seems so small scale and so personal. Mm. Marcus Aurelius, before writing it, he says he wrote part of it at Carnuntum. He writes at Carnuntum. Okay. Now, I went to Carantum recently in Austria on the banks of the Danube. There was a Roman legionary fortress there. So Marcus had to go there and take command of the, the Roman legions that he'd massed in order to defend the empire against a huge invasion of a coalition of northern barbarian or foreign tribes. Mm. And uh, Marcus wanted his brother, his co-emperor Lucius Verus to do it, but Lucius died of the plague. It was plague at the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, Marcus was thrown into this situation without any military training whatsoever in his mid-40s, having probably never left Italy before. He donned the military cape and robes, as the Historia Augusta puts it. In other words, he put on his general's uniform and he rode out across the Alps to this foreign country and took command of the largest army ever assembled on a Roman frontier, which we estimate would have numbered 140,000 men, wow. including legions, auxiliary units, cavalry, the uh, Roman navy that sailed in the Danube, 140,000 soldiers under his command. He'd never been in the army. Like, his, takes, his, uh, the mm. guy that he wanted to do this had just dropped dead. Like, and so he was in the middle of a plague. 
a smallpox epidemic and he had no choice but to, to do this. Mm. And so imagine the pressure. And he was sickly. They say that he had to stand uh, in the army camp and deliver speeches to the, the, the legionaries assembled before him and he struggled to do it in the winter because he was so frail that he, he tended to lose his voice in the cold air. Mm. Um, he coughed up blood and we don't know what was wrong with him exactly but he's, he had chest and stomach pains he's believed mm. he had problems eating he maybe had chronic stomach ulcers among other things um, but he was facing a, an incredible uh, challenge when he wrote that book there's hardly any indication of that it's easy to forget that mm. he seems just like a regular guy in yeah, a way yeah. like he's doing philosophy you don't think as he's he's writing this, and then he's going to put his pen down and he's go out, he's going to go out and deliver a speech to hundreds, thousands of legionaries, mm -hmm. going, and the, and orders that are going to be disseminated to an army of hundred wow. men. Like it's almost inconceivable. But there is there's one passage where he says what Marcus tends to do unintentionally. He kind of conceals his circumstances in a way because of something that he does, he tends to take aspects of his real world situation and turn them into metaphors for philosophy. Okay. So um, he says, uh, for example, there's certain things that are inevitable in life. Like if someone betrays you, it's bound to happen eventually, especially if you're a Roman emperor, you know, it's part of the deal mm. why you get betrayed. So you need to be ready for it. And he says, like we were talking about earlier, he compares being frustrated with that or shocked by it. Um, to being frustrated by the neighing of horses if you happen to be stationed near uh, where horses are, are stabled. Mm. Now, in Conuntum, there were hundreds of horses because of the Roman cavalry units that were stationed there. Yep. Like, so even in that little passage, Marcus is probably talking, he's not just, it sounds like he's just plucking a metaphor out of thin air, but he probably, he says he had problems sleeping and he would have been surrounded by hundreds of horses. So it would have been kind of noisy. Mm. And he said, like, it's like the constant neighing of horses. Like, it's just one of those irritants in your environment that you have to learn to live with it. You have mm. to accept it. Like, like, it's like asking the horses to shut up. You mm. know, it, it would be a ridiculous thing to do. Rather, it's your responsibility to learn to get over it and live with it. But he, in one passage, he says that he's talking about philosophy as a whole. He gives us beautiful little fragment of oratory or rhetoric where he says that, uh, in it, he says famously, um, philosophy, uh, talking of philosophy, he says life is warfare and a sojourn in a foreign land. Now, as many scholars have, most people probably wouldn't even notice that when they're reading it, but as many scholars have pointed out, he's definitely sounds like he's describing his situation at that time. Mm. Like, he was in a foreign land. He was in Austria. He'd never been out of Italy before. He crossed the Alps. He wasn't used to the climate. Uh, or the environment at all. He's surrounded by foreigners. And uh, and he was engaged in this colossal war. Like, but he's turning it here into a metaphor for life in general. Uh, and he does that at one point with the plague. Mm. He says, I'll tell you what's an even more serious epidemic, moral corruption. He says, in a sense, that's even more serious than the Antonine Plague. Mm. Like and so the only he's a, this seismic event which killed maybe at least perhaps ten percent or more of the Roman population. It's one of the worst plagues in history, and you again you're reading the meditations, you're oblivious to the fact that this is going on around him. And yeah, yeah. Marcus, 
Except there's this one passage where again he turns it into a he he twists it around and turns it into a kind of metaphor for life in general or metaphor for philosophy. So there are more references to his environment than you first realize because you think he's just using these like curious. Yeah, you forget that. Yeah, yeah. He he talks about being in the amphitheater and seeing the wild beast fighters and seeing uh, uh, also watching wrestlers and uh, gladiators. Um, he says, um, like, philosophy is more like being a boxer than a, a gladiator because a gladiator can put down a sword and uh, it'll lose it, pick it back up again. But the boxer only has to clench his fist and he's armed himself. Mm. And, and Marcus had trained in boxing and also trained uh, uh, to fight in armor, possibly with gladiators mm. when he was a young man. So he had a lot of experience with these kind of Roman sports, as it were. Um, and to him, this is a metaphor for philosophy. Again, we talked about memorizing these pithy sayings. He's saying that once you've memorized them, that for Stoics, clenching your fist is like focusing your mind on a saying. Mm. Um, he said that, that it's always there, ready to hand. They, they like to use this expression, you ready to hand for their, their principles. For someone who, I guess, who's read self-help books superficially, would be like the gladiator. He, mm. he goes, oh, I've got the sword. Yeah. But it's not become part of him. Like, he could lose it. Or he's, oh, I left it at home today. Mm. Like Marcus says, no, you need to be more like the boxer. It might be maybe that sometimes you relax your hands, but at any moment, if you wanted to, you could clench them, and that principle would be back there in your mind. Like the the, the self help lessons that you've learned, or you carry with you everywhere you go. Like you've memorized these precepts and saying, and all you need to do is, is turn your attention and focus on them occasionally. Mm. You've always got your carry your your weapons as it were with you, and yeah. to, to face the warfare of of life. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's incredible. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I think um, Marcus Aurelius, he's just su such a humble man. Like, like if he, like he had everything he had, like, he was, he was also around like women as well. He had alcohol around him, but he didn't indulge in those in the entertainment. He didn't do any of that stuff. He just focused on himself. That was well, the way that we told the stories and the, and the histories. And we do, by the way, I'll qualify this by saying, we, we, we have to take the histories, uh, we have several histories, three main ones of Marcus's reign and, and some other fragments from Hedorian Cassius Dio and the Historia Augusta. And, and we have little bits of archeological evidence and stuff as well. Mm. And uh, we have to take it with a pinch of salt because these stories are biased and often it looks like they have an agenda. Mm. Um, but the way that we're told the story of Marcus's reign, his adoptive brother and co-emperor, Lucius Verus, mm -hmm. is like the opposite. And he yeah. was, compared to Nero in that, he was a playboy. Mm. Um, all he did was get drunk and play dice all night and he surrounded himself with uh, courtesans and um, just put on extravagant banquets and was always at the, the, the race course and was obsessed with, with gambling and, you know, went, never did much work. And he mm. uh, to let his generals do all the fighting during the Parthian War while he was just off like holidaying and stuff all the time, mm. uh, although he was meant to be a command. And uh, so he, you know, he did the opposite. He saw being an emperor as uh, yeah. like a, a, an opportunity. I don't know what's the expression like, uh, like yeah, an invitation to a party. Mm. Like, and I have to say, there were kind of several ways that a, a Roman emperor could hang on to power. So Roman Emperor technically is acclaimed by the military. He, he's first and foremost really supreme commander. Like he, that's what Imperator means. Like he's, he's theoretically, he's the, he's the head of the military. Um, 
But the, the, so the one way a Roman emperor can hang on to power is to get really in with the military. And, you know, to do that, you have to have a good war, yeah. like basically, or, you know, deal with, or you have to give the, 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 the military a lot of money, which is, you know, like a slightly risky thing to do as well. Um, but you have to kind of be popular with the military and that will shore up your base and make you powerful. Another way you can hang on to power is to be popular with the Senate. To do that, you have to agree with everything they say, yep. by, or at least kind of go along with them a lot. You have to be willing to share power with them. And the emperor essentially had a veto on everything the Senate could do. But some emperors said, look, I, I'm going to rule collaboratively with the Senate. I, I see myself as sharing power. And that's what Marcus did. He said every major decision or appointment he took, he ran it past the Senate first. Mm. He said, I see myself as sharing power jointly with you guys. It, it's not a dictatorship. Although the, a Roman emperor could, if he wanted, run it like a dictatorship and he could just purge the Senate. And, but Marcus tried not to do that. Mm. And the other way a, an emperor could hang on to power is by getting the, the population of Rome uh, on his side. And the way to do that is by becoming, basically becoming what we call today a celebrity. Okay. And the way to do that is by posing a lot, uh, making sure you look nice, yeah. having lots of famous friends, throwing lots of extravagant parties, putting on big festivals. And so Nero tried to do that. Lucius Verus tried to do that. Commodus tried to do that. <laughs> Marcus thought that was toxic. Like, you know, he thought that this is not a good way to hang on to power. But mm. his co-emperor Lucius Verus kind of looks like he's going down that route. He doesn't really care that much about the military. He just abandons them and leaves them to it. Mm. He doesn't seem really that interested in doing politics with the Senate. But he was a celebrity. They say he had blonde. A lot of people imagine that. We, by the way, we don't know what color Marcus Aurelius's hair was. Oh wow! Like, I was assuming he, it was blonde, he's right? Affected <laughs> having you know, dark brown hair. Mm. But Commodus, his son, had blonde hair. Like so, it's like, and I think he'd look weird if we imagine him with, but he because we're so used to it. But he may mm. have had blonde hair. But uh, Lucius Verus had blonde hair. And we're told that it was believed, at least rumoured, that he sprinkled gold dust on his hair. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> without a shadow of doubt, if Lucius Verus was alive today, he would definitely be on Instagram. Like, <laughs> yeah. He'd be huge on Instagram. Like, um, and that, that's exactly what he was all about. Um, and Marcus was like, nah. Like, you know, what I'm going to... Marcus was a workaholic. He spent mm -hmm. his entire life in the law courts studying jurisprudence, preparing to rule as a bureaucrat, um, dealing with the, negotiating with the Senate. Uh, and then when he had to, he assumed command of the military. And that, that's a nice story in a way as well, because at the beginning, it's implied, and we can certainly assume, that the army must have thought, who is this guy? Like, you know, the army were very kind of, mm. like, you might imagine, like, Who's this person? Yeah, mm -mm -mm. you know who's who is this guy? Some bureaucrat, mm. like from back in Rome, who's never even set set foot outside. He's barely been out of the city. He's certainly, mm. he hasn't travelled that much uh, to the north of Italy, like let alone across the Alps. Like, who's he to take command? He doesn't have any military training at all, which is unusual for a Roman noble. He spent all of his time in, in Rome, running the city and, and yeah. involved in law. So they thought, who is this Joker? Like, um, but uh, towards the end of the war, maybe uh, six or seven years later, um, they idolize him. Like he's, uh, he's acclaimed the imperator over and over again. Um, 
the, the legions are even attributing battlefield miracles to him. They clearly like idolize him. So mm. he he won them over. Like as one thing we can say, it certainly looked like he went into this situation like uh, as an underdog, as it were. You know, uh, it's a very dangerous situation for him uh, to put himself at the front line. Like several Roman officers had already died. Mm. Um, the uh, enemy uh, massively uh, outnumbered the Romans uh, and could swarm them if they chose to. Mm. Uh, it was risky business. Um, and so he won a lot of respect by doing it. And by the end, one of the reasons that Marcus got out through the Civil War unscathed, um, he won the Civil War against him, was that the legions were 100% loyal uh, to him by that point. To, almost shockingly to other people, mm. they, they were like, that he's our guy, uh, you know, they, 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 they'd gone from thinking, this guy's never seen any military service, he's just some sickly old bureaucrat, philosopher, mm. whatever that is, like, to thinking 100% he's the guy, he's the best emperor that's ever been, mm. like, we, you know, we're, we're, like, we're all behind him. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of story of his reign, I don't think maybe that's played up enough, that he, mm. uh, you know, he won this acclaim, but by the time Marcus really has died, he was uh, a legend, uh, and, uh, and to subsequent emperors, like he, he's often held up as this kind of uh, role model of the of the ideal emperor. And but for Marcus, he his adoptive father Antoninus Pius mm. uh, is key in the meditations. He's he's very preoccupied with this idea of modelling excellence. And he in the book one of the meditations, he talks about I think it's about sixteen different people. Mm-hmm. And he lists their virtues, and they're all family members or tutors. Um, and the one he says by far the most about is Antoninus Pius, uh, his adoptive father and his predecessor as emperor. And that's partly because Marcus is looking at this guy thinking, I need to learn from my predecessor. But it's partly because he genuinely admires him mm-hmm. and wants to be like him. Um, but there's also, if you want to read the meditations at a deeper level, sometimes it's interesting to look at what he doesn't say. So he lists all these people he admires. He mentions Lucius Verus in one sentence. Okay. By co-emperor. He said uh, he's very loyal and affectionate. Okay. Now you could say that about a puppy dog. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's kind of, I would describe that as damning him with faint praise. That's his uh. co-emperor. And he say, he does say something nice about him, but he's, he's put so much thought into this. And the only thing he can come up with is the guy's affectionate and loyal. And that's it. Like, <laughs> he probably was, but he didn't say, he's also an idiot and a whoremonger and a gambler and an idler. And mm. like, he's probably an alcoholic. Like, you know, he's a complete shambles, according to the historia Augusta in particular, paints him as a car He had back, yeah. Um, but Marcus is trying to find like positive aspects to him. And, uh, but Antoninus Pius, he has this whole spiel about and, and what's interesting about that, I guess, when you read these things and study them closely, is that you can say by looking at that, I think it's very unlikely. I, I think we can be 99.9% certain that that's not the first time he's written that. Apart from anything else, later on in the same book, he also, in another passage, lists uh, a bunch of virtues that belong to Antoninus Pius that are slightly different. Mm. So I would say this is an exercise that he's done repeatedly. And, and Pius has been dead um, for like over a decade by the time mm. that Marcus is probably writing this. And, and he's still able to list in su- 
in, in, in considerable detail. I mean, try doing that for someone that you admire. Like, he's yeah, got like yeah. a, well, a whole list of specific mm. things. He's obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this. And mm. he, and to be fair, that may be because in the Senate, he would have been expected to, to give uh, speeches. Yeah. Uh, for example, at his funeral, he would have delivered a eulogy, right? Mm. And, then, and also at other points, maybe on the anniversary of his death, he would have given several speeches praising his adopted father. Um, but also as a personal exercise, he seems to be contemplating this and he's developed it in, in more depth, in surprising depth. Um, but the, the other thing um, that he doesn't say is he, he doesn't mention Hadrian. And Hadrian was his adoptive grandfather. Okay. And it, Hadrian that chose Marcus uh, to be emperor. So he said, I'm appointing this guy Antoninus Pius as my successor, but after him, uh, I want him to adopt Marcus and then after him. So Hadrian was a control freak. Okay. Right? He planned his succession several steps in advance. And so mm. Marcus is like two steps removed from, from Hadrian. He said, like, it's going to be Antoninus and then after him, long after I'm dead, it'll be Marcus who released and becomes emperor. Mm. And that's the deal. And everyone was cool with that because they were like, yeah, yeah this kid Marcus has got the potential. But Marcus says nothing about him. He's got nothing good to say about him. And he mentions him several times in the meditations, but only really as an example of some guy that died a long time ago um, to remind himself of his own mortality. But he, he doesn't have anything to say about his good qualities. And actually, if you're really interested in, in Roman history, if you read mm. what he says about Antoninus Pius, half the things he says about him can be read as implicit criticisms of Hadrian. Wow. So he'll say, no, no one could ever call Antoninus Pius a sophist. So like a kind of pretentious, bogus intellectual. <laughs> no one would ever accuse him of being that. Well, it's almost like in brackets after that, he's got, unlike Hadrian, like everybody called a sophist. Like, and uh, he said Antoninus Pius had a lot of patience. He was willing to listen to, to anybody that had questions from, unlike Hadrian. Uh, and, like, and, and so if you're interested in Roman history, the, the, the subtext there is he thought Hadrian was a terrible emperor. And uh, you know, an appalling role model, but the, the, luckily for Marcus, the emperor that intervened, Antoninus Pius, was quite a different character. I'm finding a lot of these things become more vivid for me now because at the moment I'm working in a graphic novel. Mm. Oh, wow. They're trying to kind of visualize these things that before were, were just in black and white and, and, and words um, suddenly makes the connections, the context seem more obvious and, mm. and how the whole story perhaps was intended to be, be read. Um, but so yeah, so that's right after? That's right mm -hmm. after the, um, that's the, your next project, the graphic novel? That's my next project. We're in the middle of doing it at the moment, but it'll be, it takes a long time to get the artwork done. So it might be like mm. a year, a year and a half, probably about a year and a half from now mm. before it actually hits the shelves. But I'm hoping that the, the main thing I'm hoping that, that achieves is just to reach different people. I'm kind of picking up that vibe at the moment that there are people that tell me they don't really read that many books, but they read graphic novels mm. and maybe a younger demographic. And I think it'd be awesome to take Stoic philosophy and put it in front of people that maybe don't read that many, maybe don't read all that many history books, yeah. but maybe, do, maybe would read a graphic novel. So they might not have that much access to some of the stuff normally. And yeah. I like the idea of just, showing them just going check, just check this out read this book and it, it's a pretty cool story but at the end mm. of it you may also mm. have ideas that, that would actually help you to do with anger 
uh, and, and maybe ideas or concepts or ways of thinking that might actually help you uh, deal with misfortunes and, and, and losses in life. Mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, I mean, you know, as you know, we live in a technology driven world, there's lots of distractions and uh, it's hard to focus. So I think that graphic novel would be you know, vital to, for people to understand more about stoicism, even some sort of animation video, you know, that can just walk people through um, how yeah. powerful and how humble Marcus Aurelius was. So I think it's amazing. It's a great idea. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, all right. So if there was one thing, um, that you could take away from stoicism, um, what would it be? One takeaway thing. Mm. Well, I'll give you two things cause I've mentioned one of them already and I'll mm. give you another thing. So one of them would be that passage from Epictetus that says it's not things that upset us, but our judgments about them. I think mm. that's one of the fundamental truths of stoicism. And, and I know that many people tell me that's their takeaway from stoicism and it should be because the research now validates like that way of thinking. And there are many techniques that follow on from that. Mm. I haven't got time to explain those, but people can read about them. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but something we haven't mentioned that's a takeaway oh, yeah. would be what we call the view from above. Yeah. So Marcus Aurelius in particular says, um, imagine yourself high overhead looking down at events um, the weddings, the separations, the births, the deaths, the traders in the marketplace, the armies assembled for war, um, political assemblies, tongues clacking in law courts. He says, imagine all of this stuff spread out as if you're looking from high overhead. Um, and one of the other sources, where is it now? In Ovid, he, he describes a similar thing. He says, imagine you're standing on the shoulders of Atlas, though. Seems like an obvious metaphor, mm. looking down from high above. And you could also say, imagine like Zeus looking down from Mount Olympus. And these people today say a, a, a helicopter view. The French scholar Pierre Hadot, who I mentioned earlier, mm. coined the term view from above to describe this technique, which Marcus actually attributes to Plato. Um, okay. and, and Plato would have put it in the mouth of Socrates. Although we don't really, it's not really clear which pass, passage he's talking about in Plato. But... The other thing I'd say about the view from above is that in, in many ancient towns and cities, they, they often grow up around certain natural features beside a river or a, a harbour. Um, but a lot of ancient towns grew up around hills that, where there were citadels or forts built that could be defended from, mm. from attack. Um, and Athens is like that. There are several hills around Athens, but the main one in the centre is the Acrop- where the Acropolis is located. And this is a very sacred place. It's the Temple of Athena. It's the, the patron goddess of wisdom and of Athens. Mm. So Socrates and other Athenian philosophers would have been very familiar with walking up uh, the Acropolis to the sacred place and looking down at the rest of Athens and seeing exactly the things. Marcus Aurelius actually uses the word agora, he says, uh, looking down at, at Agora's uh, marketplaces, and uh, that's exactly what you, from the Acropolis, you have a, a view of the Agora, where the, the merchants sold their wares, where philosophers argued, um, where people drew water from wells, and where political assemblies took place. But it would mm. seem like the people are spread out like ants beneath you, so you have this kind of detached perspective on things. Mm. And the Stoics 
think that doing this is a, is a good way of building resilience and coping with stress. And I'll just add to that, it's really part of everything in stoicism. It's not just a gimmick or a technique. It, it, it has a deeper meaning that fits within a, a whole worldview and system of philosophy. So what that really, so there's a reason for doing it. It's not just that it works, like it's beneficial, but there's actually a, a, a logic behind it. So the Stoics argue that um, reality consists in the whole of space and time considered in its entirety. Mm -hmm. So they say, well, surely the truth must be the, the whole context. Anytime we, we look at anything in isolation, we're kind of taking it out of context and we're, we're committing a kind of lie of omission. Yeah. And the only way to get around that would be to think of the truth with a capital T as, as being if you could somehow grasp the whole history of the universe in, in one go and see things situated within that entire context. Mm. And they say, well, well, that would be impossible unless you were Zeus, unless you were God. And, yeah. you, you could, and so this would be a godlike perspective. But they think the closer you can get to that, the better. And when someone says something to you, like liars, traitors, meddling fools, and so on that you're going to encounter each day, mm. we naturally tend to narrow our scope of attention down yeah. and focus on it in isolation. So we, it's like we put it under a magnifying glass and get even more upset by it. But the, the philosophers realized that in a way that's a lie of omission. We, we only get that upset when we take it out of context. But if we broaden our context to think of that person's life as a whole, and this is one thing that they've done, and maybe there were a whole series of things from their childhood that led up to that. Mm. And maybe think of that as one encounter that we have in the whole of our lives. It's just one person among thousands and thousands that we've met. Mm. We think of that event and the whole history of the human life. Then inevitably, it seems kind of more trivial. It seems exactly. less surprising. It seems um, it's balanced out by, by all of the other competing stimuli that we now have going on in our minds mm -hmm. and so the stories would say well like, the only way that you can get that angry about it is in a way by lying to yourself and and taking it out of context and committing a lie of omission and putting it distorting it by putting it under magnifying glass mm -hmm. but although we're mortal and we can't comprehend the whole of space and time if we could uh you know these things would seem trivial to us and, and as philosophers we can at least try to broaden our perspective a bit um and that's what they they do by marcus talks about this repeatedly towards the end of the meditations in particular he keeps coming back to this idea of picturing events from high above well oh, that's amazing um yeah that's like there's so much wisdom when, when you're zooming out from a helicopter and you can just see things. Um, that, that just reminds me of like, like for the past year I've been meditating. So every 10, you know, every day, 10 minutes, I just spend a bit of time meditating. And, and from that point, I've just realized that when I, I just realized that thoughts is really just like electrical impulses in the brain. And when you just look down as it, it's just a thought, it's just a thought then you don't really get so wrapped up in the emotions of thought. It's just, you know, something just passes by. So you don't really need to entertain that. So it's just a monkey that just dances around in, in the mind, right? So you don't need to capture it, chase it. You just leave it. And um, yeah, it, it's so much yeah, wisdom like, in, in just observing things. Well, like, yeah, the Stoics had, the Stoics had the, the same idea about thoughts just being, in one passage, Epictetus says that we should talk to our thoughts and say, you're just an impression, just a thought, and not mm. a thing that you represent. Right? You're just like, something passing through my mind. Mm. And he, he tells his students to literally say that 
So Marcus's book was called To Himself, like mm. things that he said, says, say to yourself, the, 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 the epic teacher says, say to yourself, you're just an impression. Say to the impression, like you're just an impression and not all the thing you claim to, to represent. Or in Greek, it sounds better. You can't, it's difficult to translate into English, but um, it's like you're just an appearance and not at all the thing appearing or that, that, that claims to be appearing in wow. Greek. Some things are trickier to translate than those, but in Greek yeah. it's a little bit more fluid um, and it's, it's more concise. But you get the idea. It's like this saying the map is not the territory. Epictetus is saying remind yourself it's just a thought. Mm. Like it's just a representation of things and not and don't confuse it with reality. It's not, it's, yeah. Like, and put it in its place. Like, you're just a you're just noise that's going through my mind, right? Yeah. Like 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 voices in the radio or something like that. So you're just something that happens to pop into my mind. And he says, um, when desires and strong feelings pop into your mind, if you can, he says, take a step back from them and pause and then wait until you've calmed down before you decide how to respond. And this is we call this a postponement strategy today. It's a similar strategy. Wow. It requires the ability to step back from your thoughts and say, like, that you're just a thought. I don't have to, I don't have to act on this desire. Mm. Like, I can leave it a few hours. I can sleep on it. I can come back and think, do, do I still think it's a good idea to act on these feelings of anger or on this desire? Um, we call that the postponement strategy, or you could call it taking a time out, mm. especially in anger management. It's a, a popular technique. But the, of the other ancient schools, the Platonists and the Pythagoreans seem to have had this idea as well. It was a common place in ancient philosophy. But Epictetus several times tells his students to do this, to develop the knack of spotting these thoughts and, and rather than kind of hanging on to them, being dragged along yeah. by them, like to, to you know, have a kind of hands-off approach to the, their own thoughts, feelings, and, and desires and just notice them and then go, I'm not going to even react to this right now mm. you know i'm going to leave it lay and i'll you know maybe i'll come back to it later i'll see if i still feel the same way about it later fantastic all right so how can um so how can people get in contact with you and find out uh what you know the events that you're speaking at and uh you know the books that you're planning on writing well my website is just my name it's donald roberts and all one word dot name so it's not .com, it's not .name. Yep. There, it's got all my social media stuff and my e-learning site and my like, you know, Twitter and everything. So I'm pretty active online. I have a lot of online courses. Most of them are free that like, people can do. And I've got some big courses that I run on Socrates and on Marcus Aurelius. And uh, you'll find out about books and, and stuff there. All the I'm, I, it's hard to you know, I find myself doing so many different things. Yeah. To keep, I don't to keep everybody updated on them. So the other thing at the moment is my book's been translated into, uh, I think, about nine different languages. And so mm. far, we've had, I like to run through the list. We've got some good English translation. Also, the audio book is massively outselling the, the other formats, which has surprised the publisher. So the, the, the audio book, I think, of the Roman Emperor is, is, is particularly popular with people. Mm. Um, particularly... I recorded it myself because the last chapter of it I wrote in the first person. So I wanted when people listen to the final chapter that it would seem almost like a guided meditation. Mm. And I, so I was quite gratified when, when, when people started reviewing it and they said, yeah, that, that's what it felt like. And they, they seemed to really enjoy that, that part, and especially in the audiobook version. 
But in terms of languages, I'm in Greece partly because it's been translated into Greek. Mm. Uh, it's translated into Dutch. I was in Holland for that. It's been translated already into German and into Italian, and it's about to be translated into Brazilian Portuguese. And, and there's uh, other Amazing. things like in Spanish and translated into Korean. Yeah. Other things as well. So you, you can find updates about these things on Twitter. And, and I have a big Facebook group that's got just under 60,000 people in it for uh, discussing Stoicism as well. So I tend to post a lot of stuff there too. Great. Fantastic. Well, um, Donald, I really appreciate your time. Um, thank you so much for, for the wisdom. Uh, just uh, uh, this podcast interview is incredibly um, insightful and I know so many people are going to you know, get a lot of um, wisdom from it. And um, yeah, that being said, you know, wish you all the best for your future endeavors. And I know that, um, you know, you're going to be spreading wisdom throughout the entire world and um, you're going to be impacting the world in you know very positive ways so thank you very much for your time yeah thank you thanks for your questions no worries great